Malcolm Honline is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations and joins us for the weekly update on this Friday morning. Mr. Honline, welcome back to JM in the AM. Uh, good morning to you and to all, all the listeners. I guess it would be wrong to put this in the good news category because obviously it's the aftermath of such a terrible natural disaster and thousands of people have lost their lives and tens of thousands it will be uh, uh, will have suffered injuries in this terrible earthquake, but I guess in the nice news department or the silver lining department, can you describe for us the reaction of the government of Israel, the people of Israel, and the members of the Israel Defense Forces after the Nepal earthquake? Uh, Yes, and I think uh, what's remarkable is that Israel is, again, the first on the ground, and the field hospital, which was put together so quickly, and obviously nobody could anticipate it, but because of Israel's own challenges, they have developed a rapid response capacity that uh, is unmatched. And some, uh, I saw on some line, online comments about uh, the reporting on this, that it's boasting and Israel's showing off. Israel's not showing off. I think it's setting an example. And, and the fact that you had multiple responses by different organizations, by the army, by the uh, the, the establishment of the field hospital with 269 doctors going immediately and hit the ground running, uh, operating within, the, the hospital was operational within 12 hours. The search and rescue teams, others who were there with their, the dogs and with the uh, special equipment that Israel has developed to, uh, and was used in Kenya, was used in other instances um, to try to help detect any survivors. So I think the the mobilization by people who donated, individuals who donated blankets, food, money, uh, to the uh, actions of the government are really uh, truly in keeping with Jewish values, Jewish tradition, and that those who are embarrassed that we discuss it, too bad. Exactly. There were two graphs that I saw, that I saw, one that showed the amount of money that was coming in from different countries around the world. Obviously, Israel can't match some of the aid in that regard, but then it spoke about personnel, numbers of people that went, and Israel was number one on that list in terms of numbers of people that went to help out. That's right, and remember, that is a cost. It's, it's, oh, yeah. You know, <laughs> a lot of expenses. Quantifiable necessarily. Yeah, a lot of expenses. Right, and, and it's not quantifiable perhaps in the same way as uh, you know outright contributions which by the way you know the Jewish communities around the world have also right. uh, mobilized to to help did you uh, were you in touch at all or did you hear anything that we would not have heard just by casually uh, watching the uh, social media and the news about the Chabad house and the Israeli embassy and how they handled everything in the aftermath well the Chabad house was damaged but they continued to function throughout and were providing hot meals and people said it was truly miraculous how uh, the rabbi and the Rebetzin there uh, were able to continue, even though they didn't have electricity, but somehow they managed to continue to provide for uh, people who were there. Obviously, supplies are very short, and uh, this was in the immediate aftermath of it, but the, they continued to function, and many people found uh, sanctuary in the courtyard. It's unbelievable, I'll tell you. Uh, the resilience that some of those shlichim have around the world is just incredible. Uh, no, no task too great. They'll, they'll take on the earthquake if they have to. And in this case, we see they did. By the way, the, I, I believe the teenager that was saved yesterday after 80 hours under the rubble, I believe that that life was attributed to the Israeli force that was there. I think they got credit for finding the teenager that was found yesterday. According to some of the reports, that's Yeah. Okay. 
And um, the whole thing is remarkable. Also, and I'm not getting into halacha, politics, or anything else. The reality is that that um, these babies, these uh, uh, these babies of Israeli parents who had surrogates in Nepal, uh, were rescued by Israel. And uh, and the majority, if not all, I, I don't think we could say all at this point of travelers. Uh, of tourists, of those who are backpacking through that area. Uh, I believe the the vast majority of them were saved and are back in Israel. Am I right? Yes, uh, they were airlifted almost immediately uh, back on the plane that brought the initial uh, equipment to, to Thailand. Uh, and the the whole story of the surrogate mothers, unfortunately, has now yeah. become a central focus. It's something, frankly, I was not aware of and did not know the magnitude of it. Uh, it's really quite a story in and of itself it really is unbelievable it's a very complicated world out there that's for sure malcolm Holmline with us we are conducting the weekly update here at jm and what was your reaction when you heard that there will be a freedom flotilla number three that's going to be heading to gaza this summer no we knew that they had been working on it they uh at different parties had said that they would do it last year the group behind it uh, receives funding, and, and Turkey certainly seems to be encouraging these kind of actions to test Israel and the uh, resolve to, to maintain the security uh, zone that Israel's created, warranted certainly by the continued inflow of weapons. And we see that Hamas has received tens of millions of dollars from Iran, uh, as has uh, Palestinian Islamic Jihad and others, but most importantly, money that is going to rebuilding the tunnels, not to helping the people, that the cement that Israel was forced by, including some of those who backed these flotillas and kept complaining that Israel didn't allow in, which it, it, it did, but in, in a contained manner so as to assure what the final disposition of the cement was. We know that it's going into, the, into these tunnels. They, they are boasting about them, uh, tunnels that will cross uh, into Israel, uh, obviously, and secondly, that the missile technology has been improved, and some of the parts, other things, have to be smuggled in by sea. Huh. So maintaining this, and, it, and as you know, Egypt has strictly maintained the control on its borders. Um, the uh, the the concern is, of course, that the flotilla is going to bring in items that are going to be used either for terror purposes or actual weapons. Right? We are not. It's not just concrete, which you know one could argue is being used either for a benevolent purpose or for a terror purpose. But there could be actual weapons that are snuck in on this thing, right? Weapons. They're not the ones who are going to bring in the cement, but uh, uh, they, they will bring in uh, supposedly humanitarian relief. Right. Right. But but it's a fake. As you know, last time the drugs were all outdated. This was a, a sham. It was only meant to create a political controversy and a confrontation, and they will seek a confrontation this time as well. And I think the Israeli Navy learned from the last uh, instance and will um, uh, act on it. As you saw, the United Nations this week issued reports, and we know that there will be, if if there's a confrontation, they'll have more reports and more investigations. We had the release of the Secretary General's Board of Inquiry. Only twice have there been releases of Boards of Inquiry, uh, and only once with a cover letter by the statement 
as we saw this week by the Secretary General, and both of those instances were about Israel. Let me let me read this, and and then please comment further on it, just so people understand what's going on, because there's so much happening in this world, and so much violence, and so many and so many mass killings and executions. You've described them week after week, and this is what the UN is concentrating on. A United Nations Board of Inquiry has found that Israel was responsible for the damage to seven UN facilities in the Gaza Strip over the course of Operation Protective Edge, according to an abstract of its report released Monday by Secretary General Ban Ki-moon. The report also found that three UN facilities were used by Palestinian militant groups for storing weapons and for shooting rockets and mortar shells. He announced in November of 2014 that an internal independent board of inquiry be established to probe the damage caused to various installations in Gaza over the course of the war. Am I right that there would not be this type of scrutiny and not this type of investigation if it was any other country? Absolutely. The the United Nations Human Rights Council, the United Nations Security Council, the United Nations Status on Women singles out one country repeatedly, one country. And you have such massive violations of human rights going on uh, all over the world. If we, we take a look at just, you know, what's happened lately in Iran, the, the executions going on in other countries, what, let alone the hundreds of thousands of dead in Syria, and yet this is the focus. And, and what's interesting here, and people should remember, is that the testimonies that in most cases came from people who were in those camps, meaning they're Palestinians. And we know that journalists were uh, impeded from telling the truth as they were there and, and reporting. And, and when they came out, they then said, well, of course, there were rockets launched from hospitals and launched from these buildings. So they, that the first time, though, that UNRWA and the schools, the Palestinians, were reprimanded for mm, right. uh, placing rockets and firing rockets from within uh, hospital uh, within uh, UNRWA schools, UN schools, and that Israel uh, responded to attacks that came from the courtyards of those schools, came from places uh, nearby, and the, the they relied on the fact that somebody who was there, or Palestinians who were there, would testify and give and report the the truth, which in many instances they didn't. So I would not take even these findings as serious, but they. If, if you looked at the New York Times headline and others, it, it is as if it's only a one-sided condemnation. And if you look at the numbers, when they say that uh, they killed 44 civilians, it's a lot less than what the Palestinians had claimed. And, uh, and in fact, many of those people may not have died in those circumstances. Yeah. Also a lot less than... Uh than the enemy wanted to kill on Israel's side. Thank God we had the, uh, you know, the technology and the, uh, the wherewithal and the one above to protect, uh, the citizens of Israel during that war. But, uh, yeah, one would, one would have to assume they were trying to do a lot of damage. And that's one of the reasons that Israel made sure to go in and take care of things. But anyway, uh, any closer to an Israeli government, uh, by Lagba Omer, by 8 p.m. Israel time Wednesday night, which is just around the start of Lagba Omer, there's supposed to be a new government in place. Will the deadline be, uh, uh be kept? Uh, yes, I think it, 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 it is always this last minute rush. Uh, I think that the Prime Minister, having signed the United Torah Judaism in Kulanu, uh, the question is, will it be a, a 61 or 67 seat government? What's it now with you, TJ? It, right now it's 61. Okay. Assuming everybody else falls in line. You're right, meaning, meaning if Biden and Shas go like they're supposed to. Right. right. And uh, the question is whether Lieberman's party, which right. I believe will also fall in place. He has five or six. He would be the, prime, the foreign minister again. He has six seats or five? Is it five? Six. Six. So, so it would bring it to 67. It's the difference between 61 and 67. And uh, I think the likelihood is you'll, you'll get to the 67. He wants that extra cushion. 
but uh, he's going to have to pay a price for it. And for those who wonder why someone like this, with a quote-unquote overwhelming victory, cannot establish a government in the 70s and 80s in terms of seats, if you see what's going on in terms of negotiation just to get to the 60s, it's impossible. I mean, with with the number of cabinet positions and the deals that have to be made and the laws that he's going to have to try to repeal, it's impossible. Well, he could have gotten into uh, more easily if he went to a national unity government right. and brought in uh, labor and they would have, and together with Kulana or Lapita or one other, they really would have had a majority. Uh, but he, he the, the, I don't think there was a prospect right now of that happening. Uh, it is not impossible that sometime later on in the term that will be necessary. Why does always the opposite seem to happen? It never seems that it goes in that direction of adding seats to a government. It always seems like it always goes in the direction of falling apart and calling for new elections. Yes, and I'm saying, first of all, I don't think the people of Israel and any party wants to be responsible because they're tired of these elections. Right, but... political system. I don't remember... Have you... sell right now, and they have... And, and you know, Nahum, uh, uh, the, the need right now is so great for unity, given the pressures. We know that in the United Nations, we're moving towards the possibility of a French resolution and, and no U.S. veto. We're looking at Iran's uh, expansion, the, the more intense role in the Golan of uh, Hezbollah and IRGC. We see the, the, the collapse of Assad. We see so many things where it's essential that there be a united front of Israel and that the government of Israel be free to act decisively and be focused on these critical um, issues. Right, and who would dare disagree with you? That's why I say that, that instead, I, I don't remember ever, uh, and maybe you know of a precedent, where in the midterm, you know, months after the election was, was finalized, that uh, the, the prime minister was trying to negotiate to add more people into the government, or others tried to create more of a larger unity government. I just don't remember that ever happening. Yeah, in times of crisis, they have formed unity governments to, to uh, address uh, either economic crisis or, or foreign uh, threats. And certainly right now, we are facing uh, an array of issues, uh, and the changes that are taking place of such significance, you know, what, what's happening in Saudi Arabia right now with the changing governments, people hardly even look at it, but it's, it's, uh, uh, it's an earthquake in terms of, of what's happening. And in Syria, you have a dramatic change in terms of the, the diminution of, the role of, of Assad standing right now and Qatar, Saudi Arabia, and Turkey providing more weapons to the rebels. They took Idlib, which is very critical, and areas in Damascus. People are, are already foreseeing the beginning of the end, uh, and uh, you're going to see uh, Hezbollah play, play more of a role now, and, and therefore, which may be good news because they won't be able to be more involved in the Golan right now. Right. But the, the, these developments, which you know, are not distant uh, to Israel. People might think Saudi Arabia is far away. It isn't. And the ramifications could be felt in uh, Gaza. It could be felt in arms shipments. It could be felt in changed uh, atmosphere. This this new government is not going to go after the Muslim Brotherhood anymore. They, they are going to move much more conservative. They're going to reverse some of the, quote, concessions that have been made, unquote, you know, meaning it's all relative. The fact that, uh, uh, that you had a woman the highest-ranking woman, who was a deputy education minister, was removed. She's been there since 2009 and was the symbol of change, that the uh, religious police are being given much more power and that this uh, government is even cooperating in some ways with Qatar, which they hate, and they hate each other. 
Um, so they could have very broad ramifications. America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program. Heard on listeners sponsored WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope, Rockland County at 91.9 in the FM Dial Broadcasting Live from the Sonia and Robert Gold Studios in Jersey City, New Jersey, around the world on the web, jmnam.org. Malcolm Honline, our guest, of course, where the, the weekly update here at JM and the AM. Um, the demonization of Assad that you mentioned, obviously I understand politically why it matters, and but does it really matter? In other words, while he's still in power, does it, does it really matter that he's being challenged to the degree that he is? It seems like it doesn't seem, it doesn't seem to affect him much. Oh, it, it will affect him a lot. Now, it, it, as I said, since this fighting began, and we discussed dozens of times, as long as he held Aleppo and Damascus, right. he could stay in power. Right. He might be able to have a small cut-out area for the Alawites, you know, around Latakia, and, and the Russians would probably protect it because they have their base there. But this is very significant because the rebels uh, will get additional support, and um, it will put the United States in uh, in a very uh, in a more complicated position. How much more complicated can it get for them at this point? We haven't known whether we should support Assad or not for, for God knows Part how long. Of the reaction of those countries was against the United States. They're tired of the U.S. Building. Right. And the, and the failure to target the, the, the IS has killed thousands of people outside the battles. And you, you see um, uh, that Hezbollah was playing more of a role in and giving the orders in the defense of Assad. So think of the ramifications of that and, and the, the fact that you have Hezbollah tied down now, but Iran losing, potentially losing a main ally, uh, could cause them to escalate things in other areas if they want the diversion that's easy for them to do, especially in the Golan where we know that there have been these, uh, these clashes. Um, and Soleimani of the IRGC went to Beirut. People think it was to, to coordinate the, the attacks. It wasn't. It was to restrain Hezbollah because the last thing Iran wants now is to give Israel a pretext to smash them and to, uh, you know, have uh, Israel choose the time and place, not in response to rocket attacks, but because of provocation. Yeah, but if the if the news and, and the reports are true of this missile and rocket buildup on the northern border, then isn't that a pr- provocation enough for Israel to respond and try to wipe them out? Yes, but nobody, neither side wanted to have an escalation as long as it was a mutual interest to keep the borders quiet. The question is, are they keeping the borders quiet? And we know there's more and more activity uh, along the Golan, the earth moving equipment, other attempts, and the uh, and Soleimani's message was restraint, hold back, don't do it. Uh, they want them uh, to to fight in uh, in in Syria itself, and more than five thousand Hezbollah troops are, are actively fighting and uh, actually leading the fight for Assad. So this shift that takes place, whether if Assad falls or uh, is even driven to to a different uh, posture, meaning in in an isolated area, it doesn't mean the problems will be solved. I think Syria is not coming back together again. You're not going to see all of a sudden emergence. I think you'll see chaos and uh, factionalism, and that can lead, as we know, into unknown consequences of people coming to other coalitions they can increase terrorism you can do many other things that uh, uh, can come, come about and the iranians which all, who all along have said they would not let Assad fall the russians who invested so much both of them will will have to make very uh, quick decisions about the degree how far do they stick with them 
uh, with with him, and how much do they invest yet in it? Maybe a silly question, but how, how did Israel know that these terrorists over the weekend were trying to plant those bombs on the border with Israel uh, before the Israeli Air Force supposedly? I know they're officially denying it. Before they went ahead and retaliated, was it was it satellite? Was it intelligence? Was it you know seeing it from towers? How did they find them? Uh, what I know uh, is that uh, they were seen, and Israel has drones flying over the area. Israel has uh, satellites that focus on this, but you know that that's a question of timing. But the drones fly pretty regularly. They saw the group. It was not just an individual; it was a group. Right. They were uh, planting the bomb, and they caught them in the act and eliminated them. And this airstrike that happened uh, in retaliation on the, on the missile bases in Syria was co- was called a bullseye. It was called a very, very successful operation. Uh, I assume you've heard the same. Uh, I'm being, I'm being tongue-in-cheek only because Israel continues to deny that they had a role in it. That's all. That, that's right. And the, in, and the place that they did not hit had rockets that were being stored for transfer to, to Lebanon. Some people say that they actually hit a convoy earlier right. that it was already moving. And one report, unconfirmed, but said that there were S-300 missiles there, which would have been a very significant, very significant hit. Uh, but again, it didn't take place, so we don't know. Right, or at least it didn't take place by the Israelis. But in all seriousness, this was a really important um, reaction operation. This was a very they, – they accomplished a lot with this retaliation on, uh, over the weekend. Well, number one, it sends a message, both about Israeli intelligence, about their ability to strike in, in very pinpoint ways, and it sends a message to the uh, to the uh, Syrians, and and the message uh, to the world is that they don't strike back, meaning that they don't have the capacity to hit back, they don't want an escalation, they are they don't want to at this point give Israel the pretense on, on either front, neither from the uh, Hezbollah side nor from the the Syrian side. So the their activities continue in the Golan and certainly the Iranians are going to not diminish their fo- their focus there, but I think the the fact that you don't have a, a response doesn't mean there aren't attempts uh, to do so, but it doesn't happen. Senator Mark <laughs> Senator Marco Rubio of Florida is demanding a vote on an amendment that would press Iran to recognize the state of Israel, threatening a fragile bipartisan coalition that already fashioned a compromise bill, giving Congress a voice in the Iran nuclear talks. Now, I know every Republican candidate is trying to prove that they are more pro-Israel than the others. Uh, is is this a uh, a is this symptomatic of that? Is Rubio uh, is stretching it a bit, thinking that he's going to get a, an amendment that would force Iran to recognize the state of Israel, or would this have happened even if election season? was not building up. Well, he has said this before, but so has Prime Minister Netanyahu put this as one of the demands he wanted to see. A lot of people thought it was not realistic and it was uh, tangential to the to the essential agreement. Uh, but the message really is that Iran can't continue to threaten the existence of the Jewish state, that the uh, Zarif, the representative, can sit and in, in interviews in New York and make the most arrogant and horrendous statements focusing on Israel's nuclear program, talking about uh, Saudi Arabia. They condemned Saudi Arabia recently for the attacks in Yemen and said, what do you think they are, Israel? Mm. <laughs> they think coming back to yeah. attack. But, uh, you know, uh, uh, to me, by the way, one of the most disturbing things 
and it, and it shows that, that there's a lack of understanding of the significance of symbolism, especially in the Middle East. When uh, Zarif met with Kerry, Secretary Kerry, uh, they met not at the UN and not at ambas- U.S. Ambassador Power's residential office, but at the residence of the Iranian ambassador to the UN. Wow. And, you know, this was reported, got almost no reaction. I, I made some phone calls, and I said, I, I can't believe this. Why would you do that? Because in the Middle East, that has great symbolism. It will have, I think, here, too. And the, the, the arrogance with which Zarif uh, asserted themselves, he said that the, the whole the snapback is, uh, is impossible, something we generally agree with. Um, and and uh, refuting all the claims that uh, have come, including just yesterday by uh, Vice President Biden, about the agreement will close the plutonium track and it will uh, snap back uh, provisions will be in place uh, for the UN sanctions. And the the Zarif is saying, you know what we're going to do? As soon as they sign the deal, we're going to the UN mm. and we're going to get them to remove the uh, the sanctions and every country will be uh, bound by it. Also talking about they won't snap back the, the sanctions, they won't uh, lift all the sanctions that Congress and others approve, but there's $100 billion in funds, much of it held by China, Russia, and others, that could be released, uh, portions of it could be released, which would give them uh, immediate relief. And you know that there are the hotels in, in, in Tehran are, are full of businessmen just trying to negotiate deals to be, to be ahead of the curve. From what countries? All over. Including the U.S.? Or we're not allowed? Even the U.S.? Yeah, they're not signing the deals. Right. They're just preparing the deals. Right. And when you, you see the chutzpah of Iran in, in taking this ship, the Maersk um, Tigris, you know, the United States is treaty-bound to protect the Marshall Islands. It's a protectorate of, of U.S. And we, are, we, we handle their defense. Right. And that includes their shipping. Mm-hmm. So uh, assaulting a ship, firing across its bow, in international waters um, of a ship under U.S. control would have been reason certainly t- to stop the talks and to demand the immediate release. The ship was not released, as people said. It was taken, it was boarded and taken to a uh, an Iranian port. And then uh, yesterday, another mask ship that uh, was also uh, stopped at Livingston, uh, that was released. But the, the, the chutzpah and the, the continuing uh, activities harassing shipping uh, uh, with their fast boats and submarines in the, in the Gulf, the threat to close the Straits of Hormuz, the, uh, all of these things. And then the British reported to, to a U.N. panel, that the sanctions panel, that Iran is in violation and trying to bypass the, the restrictions with nuclear procurement, uh, a nuclear procurement program, meaning buying uh, parts for it, and a second from two blacklisted companies, and a second country supposedly reported that they tried to buy compressors, which is a key component to the nuclear program. And yesterday, Harf, the Marie Harf, the spokeswoman at the State Department, was pressed by Mitchell Lee of AP, I think, and she said in the end that the U.S. was aware of the cheating, that Washington raises the concerns, but Iran cheating is not a violation of the JAPOA, of the of the joint uh, pact, the agreement. Now, how how can that not be a violation of the agreement? Then Total I, I don't know what would be a violation if they're blatantly uh, continuing to import and and violating the sanctions 
it just it just doesn't make any any sense. And the um, and the statement by Zarif, where he lays out, and and you know many of the leaders in the Middle East say, look, we believe the Iranians. We see on the ground what uh, what he says. He he mocked the snapback. He said it's not even possible that the uh, and he said he doesn't care what Senator Cotton wants. Uh, the, the UN resolution were mandatory. Remember, Cotton led the, the letter for 47 senators to the Iranian leaders, saying whatever they sign doesn't mean anything right now. What, what would the snapback do if they violate the deal? So, snapback really means that we can that we will lift sanctions. We're not uh, re- removing them. We're not canceling them. And if they violate, they go back on. That they would go back on, but. But it, it it doesn't work that way. It, it would take months, maybe a year, to to start up again right. uh, as sanctions. Hopefully, countries won't rush into into this. But you know that they will. The foreign minister of Australia was just there, Julie Bishop, and she signed four deals on, on different things, not in violation yet of the sanctions accord, but on intelligence sharing, other things. But it's seen as symbolically very significant that Australia, who was one of the strong parties in all of this. Um, would would uh, go there and be seen, you know, wearing uh, her head covered, etc. Oh boy, we're losing them. Also, you have a Washington Post reporter sitting there since July, and nothing is done. He's in Evan Prison, which is a terrible place, and and there's nothing. I mean, how is that that they can get away with all this? And that's why you know we lose credibility. Usually, there's a lot of publicity when someone of that magnitude is being held. Well, there has been publicity, but. But again, uh, people just don't care and don't understand, and you know, focused on other. Uh, yeah, but that, that should be an issue that the White House is dealing with directly. I mean, absolutely. Uh, Joe Biden, the vice president, with his demands about access to the military sites in Iran, is that realistic? Is that is that going to be a demand of the U.S. as part of this deal or not? Well, it was supposed. It's been a demand all along, and it was a requirement for the International Atomic Energy Agency, but they have been banned. And barred from the uh, from the military sites, and Khamenei said the military sites are off uh, limits. This is not going to happen. It's a red line, and the administration keeps saying, and, and Biden said it yesterday that that, that will be included. I, I don't see how you come to a final agreement when <laughs> when you know you have people saying the, directly the opposite things, and the problem is that the. It, uh, concessions appear to be all one-sided. That we see the the constant uh, movement by the West uh, towards uh, you know towards the, the the Iranian side, and the feeling that Iran has, according to many of the analysts, that they know the United States wants this deal at any cost, and that the uh, that they could get away with taking the ship or the reporter and testing and constantly probing. And and then demeaning the snapback and and um, uh, all of the other provisions that they have uh, they have talked about is is indicative of of why you see the independent movement of of countries making their own decisions because they don't believe the the West is is the United States particularly is is relevant today. And by the way, you mentioned earlier what really got you angry, and I think it was in reference to the meeting you know taking place in. Iranian home territory, so to speak, the way you described it. Uh, what got me angry this week was when I heard that the certain people living in Israel felt it was important to fly the ISIS flag on Israel Independence Day. What do you think of that? 
And by the way, <laughs> and by the way, why don't we offer that they can go join ISIS? Like, why not? Absolutely, they're free to go. Yeah, but but Israel should encourage them. I guess it can't, right? It's a democracy, and we got to let everybody voice their opinion. But I, I would encourage them to go and join. If, if ISIS is so amazing and remarkable to the point where you would support them and hail their achievements, then go join them. And you know that we've had demonstrations here, especially the BDS the demonstrations, and we've had uh, resolutions on many campuses again. It was beaten at the University of Texas, but at Princeton, a resolution was defeated, but by a vote of 52 to 48, with over 2,000 of their undergraduates voting. Now the graduate students are supposed to vote, and we're afraid the outcome will be a different one. Oh, boy. Um, why, why the more intelligent you get, the... Uh... No. <laughs> but, <laughs> but the, As you climb the academic scale, things get even well, more murky. That they, they, they can fly. That in some instances, they brought out ISIS-type flags, and as part of the demonstration, uh, even swastikas painted on buildings. I know that the AEPI uh, Jewish fraternities have reported, I think, 14 of their facilities have been attacked since September, since the beginning of uh, the school year. And the, the number of resolutions, and thank God, in many places defeated, but also passed in some places, doesn't necessarily lead to, to and universities, uh, you know, generally reject it, the administrations uh, reject it. But it's not insignificant that one country, the one democracy, the one place, when the UN Council on Women for the Rights of Women picks out of 193 countries one country to condemn after 30 women are elected to the Knesset, mm. and certainly rights of women far better than 99.9% than of the other countries in the United Nations, and then and they are singled out, and these issues then take on a life of their own. Uh, and you see that the, there's no condemnation of all these other countries who are, are uh, moving backwards now, as Saudi Arabia uh, will, and we have to see what will happen in, in uh, other countries as a result. But this it's just the hypocrisy and the uh, uh, lack of honesty. Shouldn't be shocking, but each time it just uh, reminds us again and again why we have to stand together. We can't afford the disunity. We have to be activist and, and be on top of the issues. And if anything we learned from this week, Baltimore, Maryland, not to compare a situation, but if anything we learned, you know, so- social media can bring people to a decision, very often a wrong decision in, a, in an instant these days. And that's why we can never let our guard down. And I'm not talking about reacting to violence. I'm talking about what you were just speaking about in terms of protests against Israel on campuses, etc. If you let your guard down these days, forget it, because all you need is a few seconds for the uh, for the other side, for the enemy, for those who want to uh, cause trouble, uh, the opportunity. And, and it happens in an instant. And I do want to give some good news that this week uh, I was in Texas for a few hours to launch uh, the Hispanic, National Hispanic Israel Alliance. Um, uh, undertaken by the largest association of Hispanic uh, churches, and, and it's both American. 41,118 audited churches in the United States are part of this movement now, and more than 500,000 worldwide members of Canela who are mobilizing and organizing uh, in support of Israel and joining uh, great friends like Hufai and others uh, in in a really critical alliance in, in, in standing together with the Jewish community uh, on, on Israel. Why do you think that there is such a large segment of the Hispanic population that is leaning in that direction? Is it because of their religious affiliation? These are uh, largely evangelicals. A third of the Hispanic community in America 
is evangelical or are evangelicals uh, or affiliated with evangelical churches uh, and they tend to be as you know very supportive of Israel but not to be taken for granted we've seen it in other parts how much effort uh, being made by Palestinians by others yeah. uh, to infiltrate and in fact this thing grew out of a reaction to such an uh, 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 an attempt to, to uh, uh, obfuscate the real intention and when people who went on our America's Voices in Israel program to Israel saw what was happening in the association of one of their leaders with an event that is actually a very hostile anti-Israel event, though on its surface would appear to be just a religious uh, gathering, when they found out the reality, they went back, they, they convinced him not to go, and uh, instead he announced he would go to Israel, and out of that grew this incredible effort. And it's, uh, uh, we, we are working in every community, and everybody listening has a responsibility to reach out to others at work, at other places. You know, that, that was, our studies show that the pro-Israel numbers go up three times, 300%, when people talk about Israel, and therefore they have to educate themselves, yeah. the Daily Alert, the Jewish World Review, all these other sources. J.M. and the A.M. And, of course... You know, it's funny because... Um First of all, on, on your first point, the, uh, the, uh, no, I've lost my train of thought. I can't believe it. <laughs> on the first point, a, 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 a major Jewish philanthropist said to me this week that he firmly believes that the Hispanic vote, the majority of the Hispanic vote in this country could go Republican. I was very skeptical to hear him say that, but based on what you just said in terms of the numbers affiliated with the evangelical church, that there is, uh, you know, for those who want to see it go Republican, there is hope. The immigration issue is a huge issue, obviously, in right. all parts of the Hispanic community. But if the Republicans uh, play it smart, they, they certainly could make major inroads. We know the Cuban, uh, uh, for instance, the Cubans tended to be more Republican. And you remember uh, Lana was Leighton, who's a Republican member of Congress uh, from uh, Florida and others. Uh, who, uh, so, again, we tend to look at communities monolithic. It isn't true. And we have to understand them. We have to know the differences. We have to, just as they, trying to look at the Jewish community, think that we are one united block. If only they knew. Yeah. Um, Without of us to continue to show that we are, in fact, united over the critical issues. Yeah, and by the way, in a private conversation, and you and I don't speak uh, off the air as often as we speak on the air, but you, you said to me this week, or you may, maybe you agreed with what I have said, uh, a lot of people care out there. A lot of people care. And you meet a lot of people, and I meet a lot of people who care in our community, but not enough people get involved. Not enough people do. And if we can convince more people to do, then, you know, it'll be a much easier battle to fight. Absolutely. And in many ways, it, uh, I have to say I was in Livingston. I was in uh, Fairlawn Edison. Uh, very big turnout of people. I think people are deeply uh, interested. They sat for a long time in both instances to, to hear and um, we have to especially educate our youth. And as many times as we say it on the show, I still run into this buzzsaw every place we go in, in uh, Orthodox and non-Orthodox communities alike about the, the lack of knowledge of our kids and, and not preparing them for, for realities. And, and when they look at what's happening in Europe, how many of our kids really understand that would mobilize like we did for Soviet Jewry for other communities? You know, there are communities in danger. We, we have everyday exchanges with different communities in Europe. Uh, I will be going to visit uh, 
another area where uh, Jews are, are in danger this coming week. Uh, and unfortunately, there are just more and more of them. Look at the situation in South America today. You saw that the the um, uh, charges that are being brought against leaders of the Jewish community by an individual, supposedly, but it follows charges by high-ranking Argentinian officials against the leaders of the established uh, community, and it's part of uh, of their drive in the post after the killing of uh, Nisman, the prosecutor who was going after the president and foreign minister, a foreign minister who has uh, Jewish roots. Uh, resigned publicly and irrevocably from the community and charged them also. And they're using words like treachery and treason, things that uh, carry real uh, serious consequences and, and can incite a public. And we know that in Argentina, uh, we've had it in the past. So yeah. this is, uh, uh, people have to understand the true nature and they may not like to hear it and they may think that it's, you know, we're, we're, we're giving them bad news, but it's not bad news. This is the reality of the world we're living in, and only by understanding it and acting can we prevent bad news. Yeah, finally, as I uh, alluded to earlier, we checked in with Baltimore and the community earlier this week, and obviously we do care about the safety of all of our American brethren and citizens, obviously, but because of the uh, family and friends that uh, that are down in Baltimore that so many people share, obviously it is a concern for our community. And I was wondering if, uh, I was really curious what you would say if you were asked this by a member of the general media. In your experience, and you've seen so much over all these decades, uh, wouldn't you agree, and I'm sure you do, but I wish you'd expound on it, wouldn't you agree that what the, the real changes you've seen, the real effective long-term changes you've seen in society have come from the organized, peaceful, large demonstrations that sometimes go on for years because these efforts take time and that the violent demonstrations have never really had a positive effective change the violent demonstrations only destroy and and set back causes uh, i know that it's it, in the cases some of these you know the it's youth or it's other people but they're being driven to it if the community if every mother would have reacted the way that one mother whose picture appears all the time right they all would have reacted that way. You would not have had the burning down of, of, of stores and others and destruction of communities, and they will not recover for a long time from it. And it only further demeans and diminishes their lives and the quality of their lives. The, the, the burden for cost of it is, is going to fall on everybody. And as you know, I have a son living there, and I right. have many nephews and nieces living there. It's, it's a great Jewish community. The schools had to close for a day. The, the, they, the shuls have to dive in early so that they're back in before the, the um, uh, what do you call it? Curfew. Pardon me? The curfew goes into effect. I think it's at 9 o'clock. Um, but we know what the price that is paid from this. We, look all over America at the, uh, the price. And, and who do they punish and, and, and the, to destroy a drugstore that served the community? Is is uh, it, it shows that there's a lack of leadership on the one hand, but this, res, this resorting to violence can go uh, unchecked gets to be a, a commonplace thing. But any effect? I want to say that the one thing that gave me some encouragement was the new Quinnipiac poll. Uh, I don't know if you saw it um, that said uh, that the, the American people want the president to be a strong supporter of Israel by 67 to 20 percent. And a plurality of them said that they did not think Obama was strong enough in, in support of Israel. And that 63% see Iran as a major threat, and 65% want Congress to play a role. 
So when we, we look at the general public, we see that, that despite the distortions and misrepresentations and informational uh, um, distortions, the American people are very smart. They ultimately get it. And uh, so we shouldn't assume that, that everybody's falling into the trap and, and the support for Israel remains remarkably high despite the tensions and a lot of the... Yeah, but I don't know if those issues are at the forefront of their minds as much as they care about them when they go into the election booth, that I don't, the voting booth. I'm not sure. I'm, I'm not, sure. not saying that that is going to be the criterion which right. they're going to choose the next president. Right, right. Saying what they expect Correct. of the president. And, what they and it is a message to candidates. I can assure you that every candidate read this poll. This is not like a 50-49, 51-49 right. split. Right. When two-thirds, you, you know, people may say, well, it's not 80-90%. Nothing in America gets 80-90% generally. Right. <sighs> Thank God a week later the world still stands, Malcolm. And we are doing well. <laughs> we'll do better. And please God it will be standing when we speak again next Look, week. We're moving up to Shavua, so we're going moving. This is uh, always a difficult because we're going up uh, towards Harsinai, so... So I'm not allowed to use my yeah. line. I'm not allowed to use. I'm not allowed to use my line today. When someone asks me what Malcolm said, I can't say the world's coming to an end. I'm not allowed to say that today. <laughs> People know that I say that as a joke, but but there's there, there's plenty there's plenty to worry about as you continue to warn us each week. Well, that's why I worry for everybody so they don't have to. There you go. You're a benevolent man. You're like the Hasidic Rebbe who fasts and his constituents don't have to. You're amazing. <laughs> have a wonderful Shabbos. Malcolm Online is executive vice chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations.